0: Dear Father, please bring us close to you just now. May we come to experience your constant presence in our lives, and may we enter into a closer friendship with you. Amen. Now, the books of Paul are not arranged chronologically. So it's not like he first wrote Romans and and on down. They're actually, uh, it's interesting, they're arranged by the length. So Romans is the longest book and then 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, they get shorter and shorter, and then all the way down to Philemon, which is just a single um, page. And then Hebrews, of course, there's some debate about who wrote Hebrews. Um, we talked about Hebrews a few weeks ago in uh, one of the uh, Saturday meetings uh, for some of you, and so uh, I think uh, very likely Paul did write Hebrews, but anyway, that's kind of tagged on at the end. So we're going to go through uh, today First and Second. Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus. And 1 and 2 Thessalonians, for example, is a very um, early writing by Paul. And as we'll discuss, a lot of in Thess- Thessalonians is about the second coming. And so we'll talk about some issues related to the second coming. So in the first chapter here, Paul says, all those people speak about how you received us when we visited you. And how you turned away from idols to God to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son to come from heaven. His son, Jesus, whom he raised from death and who rescues us from God's anger that is coming. We talked about God's anger so much, not artificially, but because it keeps coming up again and again through the Old and the New Testament. And uh, you remember how often we've referred to Romans 1 and to specific examples of what is God's anger, all the way through the Old Testament, but, well, here we can't ignore it again. Uh, How does Jesus rescue us from God's anger? Um, Well, we could use all those other examples that we used before, but thankfully here as we read along in Thessalonians, Paul uh, gives us a clue. Now here he's talking about the Jews, and Paul says, "'Our brothers and sisters,' The same things happened to you that happened to the churches of God in Judea, to the people there who belonged to Christ Jesus. You suffered the same persecutions from your own people that they suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. How displeasing they are to God, how hostile they are to everyone. They even tried to stop us from preaching to the Gentiles, the message that would bring them salvation. In this way, they have brought to completion all the sins They have always committed and now God's anger has at last come down on them all right so how did God's anger come down on the Jewish people who rejected Jesus well you remember what happened Jerusalem was destroyed who destroyed Jerusalem the Roman army came and uh, so again an example an example when we look at what actually happened historically God's anger, defined so clearly in Romans, is uh, God's people rejecting again and again and again and again, and God not arbitrarily deciding, okay, now I'm going to cut you off, but rather when they just won't listen, and God is left with a choice of either overriding their free will, pulling strings, and he d- doesn't do that. So rather than overriding their free will, he allows them to follow on in the course that they have chosen. And uh, here the Jewish people had the writings of the Old Testament, um, knew the law inside and out. God comes and they rejected him. What more could God do? They weren't listening. And so in his anger, he gave them up. And we read, how did he give them up? Well, read about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, okay? Because they would, would not accept God. So again, another example here of God's anger in action Okay, now reading on, we'll get to several different descriptions here about the second coming, in all here in Thessalonians. So the first here in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, We want you to be quite certain, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, to make sure that you do not grieve for them as others do who have no hope. And do we grieve for people who have fallen asleep? Now remember, Jesus when Jairus' daughter died, he said, well, she's just asleep, and everyone laughed. Lazarus was dead, and he told the disciples, well, he's asleep, and they said, well, if he's asleep, there's no problem. And so, again, the the description here of falling asleep is a description of this first death experience. And what what was going on here at this time is that the people were very depressed because they thought Jesus was coming right back. How come he hasn't come back, you know? uh, Decades go by and the early believers were dying off. Very, very discouraging. And so Paul has to give them some encouraging words. So he says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And that in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. We can tell you this from the Lord's own teaching that we who are still alive for the Lord's coming will not have any advantage over those who are falling asleep. At the signal given by the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, the Lord himself will come down from heaven. Those who have died in Christ will be the first to rise. And only after that shall we who remain alive be taken up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So in other words, um, these people who died believing in Christ, they, they won't be at any disadvantage In fact, they'll rise up first and those of us who are still alive will be caught up with them. This was to be uh, encouraging. So this is the way we shall be with the Lord forever. With such thoughts as these, then you should encourage one another that if someone dies, hey, they'll they'll get uh, taken up even slightly ahead of people who are still alive on the earth. Now the question is, if when God comes back, he's going to wake up these people who have fallen asleep, well, what happens to someone when they die? And of course, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I would say, different views about this. And, um, you know, if you've listened to a funeral service, uh, the description is usually, well, they're with Jesus now. And I would never want to stand up and raise my hand and say, well, no, they're not yet. They have to wait for the resurrection. I mean, that would be cruel, right? And and actually, there is no reason to do that because in a sense, what happens when you die? I mean, the next split second, you're with God, right? There is no long time lapse from the perspective of the person who died. So it's actually, no, I wouldn't want to intervene and say, no, they're not with God yet because from the perspective of that person, from death to meeting God face to face, it is an instantaneous um, process. And so we have these various doctrines and you know belief about immortality of the soul and so on. Why are they important? Well, I think every doctrine, every belief we have, if it doesn't enhance, refine, or somehow point to something about God, then it's not important. So is, would this be important, how we believe this? Well, let's just read on a little bit more in some other places, just in the writings of Paul. And here in 1 Corinthians, he said, this is how it will be when the dead are raised to life. When the body is buried, it is mortal. When raised, it will be immortal. When buried, it is ugly and weak. When raised, it will be beautiful and strong. In Isaiah, a voice cries out, proclaim a message. What message shall I proclaim, I ask? Proclaim that all human beings are like grass. They last no longer than wildflowers. Grass withers and flowers fade when the Lord sends the wind blowing over them. People are no more enduring than grass. Yes, grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. And the point I'm trying to make here is, um, you know, we are mortals who must be changed miraculously into immortals. Okay, and that happens at the second coming. And so there's only one person who's immortal, and that's God. He alone is immortal immortal. Now, why would, why would this be important? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, for what is mortal must be changed into what is immortal. And I think the reason this becomes an issue is, I mean, this would be a miracle, a miraculous thing, right? Us mortals who die and wither like grass and our lives are so short, we must be changed into immortals. Now, what would it say about God if He had to do a miracle to change a mortal rebel into an immortal rebel for the purpose of punishment and suffering for all of eternity. So here is where we get into, I think, the importance of immortality of the soul or not. Because if the soul is immortal, then, well, where does that person go for all of eternity? And that's where we get uh, into the doctrine of hell and and eternal, painful, painful, suffering. And again, that verse I just read in Thessalonians, if someone is already in heaven with God, why, do they, why does God need to come back to wake them up and bring them back up to heaven if they've already been there with heaven the whole time? So uh, this is uh, some of the difficulty here in trying to put all this together. So we're going to read on and again another verse in 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy to be defeated will be death. Death is destroyed. Victory is complete. So what would be destroyed here? I mean, if we die and we either go right to heaven or right to some other place of punishment, uh, what death is Paul talking about here that is finally defeated? That's not much of a. Is the sleep death defeated? Would not all death and dying be defeated? And in Revelation, we read of the great bliss when sin is eradicated. <clears throat> and I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, and the world below and in the sea, all living beings in the universe. And they were singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praised and honor, glory, and might forever and ever. Um, is there a vast number of individuals not taking part in this because they're suffering in punishment? It becomes a very important issue, I think, as it relates to the character of God, how we feel that this whole thing works out. Again, coming back to Second Thessalonians, It is also right for God to give all of us relief from our suffering. He will do this when the Lord Jesus is revealed, coming from heaven with his mighty angels in a blazing fire. He will take revenge on those who refuse to acknowledge God and on those who refuse to respond to the good news about our Lord Jesus. I like that. What does it all come down to? Do we respond to the good news about our Lord Jesus? They will pay the penalty. Okay, What's the penalty? by being destroyed forever. How are they destroyed forever? By being separated from the Lord's presence and from his glorious power. Notice, uh, destroyed forever or eternally destroyed. And we've spent a lot of time talking about how this whole process may work out. We've talked about the revenge and so Uh, We won't go back and, and try to rework through all of that. The point I'm trying to make now is that there does seem to be an end to all of this. And in Malachi, the day is coming when all proud and evil people will burn like straw. On that day, they will burn up and there will be nothing left of them. There would seem to be an end. Now, I can't read a verse like this, though, without just giving a few thoughts about what this might mean. Remember, who is... The consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. When we think about this uh, second coming and with the fire and all of that, we need to put all of the references and the understanding about fire together. And I'll just put two verses here. When we did the book of Joel, if you want to read all of these, we, we went through at least 25 or so verses that deal with this subject. These are two that I like. One in Isaiah 33. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with the everlasting burning? That's God. But notice, he who walks righteously and speaks what is right. And so there will be some people perfectly comfortable in God's presence and others who will be terrified. And in Psalm 68, as wax melts in front of the fire, so do the wicked perish in his presence. But the righteous are glad and rejoice in his presence. Notice two classes of people. They are happy and shout for joy. And uh, I, I think actually this goes all the way back here. What was the very first lie to Adam and Eve by the serpent? And he said, that's not true, you won't die. And so in essence, really the, uh, the belief that there is no death, I mean, we'll either go on right to heaven, we go right to a place of torture, uh, goes right back to the original lie to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You won't die. Of course, Adam and Eve did die, but that was the sleep death. And so just on some people, remember when we talked about translation of the Bible, we talked about great people like Tyndale, and this is what he said, and ye, in putting them, the departed souls, in heaven, hell, and purgatory, destroy the arguments wherewith Christ and Paul prove the resurrection. If he has to come back to get them, well, aren't they already in heaven? And again, if the souls be in heaven, tell me why they be not in as good case as the angels be. And then what cause is there of the resurrection? All right, what about Luther? And he was always very blunt, but he said that the soul is immortal and all these endless monstrosities of the Roman dunghill of decadals. So he's quite strong about it. And then he went on to describe it this way. Thus, after death, the soul goes to its bedchamber and to its peace, And while it is sleeping, it does not realize it's sleep. And God preserves, indeed, the awakening soul. So when Paul said, I don't know, I'd almost rather die just so that I can go to be with the Lord. Well, yeah, when you die, boom, you're with God. You know, the thousand years or whatever it is, there's no time issue there. God is able to awake Elijah, Moses, and others, and so control them so that they will live. But how can that be? That we do not know, we satisfy ourselves with the example of bodily sleep. That's the example of death. And with what God says, it is a sleep, a rest, and a peace. He who sleeps naturally knows nothing of that which happens in his neighbor's house. And nevertheless, he still is living, even though contrary to the nature of life, he is unconscious in his sleep. Exactly the same will happen also in that life, but in another and in a better way. And so I think you know, we can comfort Patients who are dying with the thought that, um, you know what, at that exact moment of death, you'll be face-to-face with God, and that's a wonderful thing. Well, so that was Luther, and then, of course, I have to put in here, for those of you who are um, Seventh-day Adventists, another quote here about uh, this whole process. And Ellen White described that it was beyond the power of human mind to estimate the evil which has been wrought by the heresy of eternal torment, The religion of the Bible, full of love and goodness and abounding in compassion, is darkened by superstition and clothed with terror. When we consider in what false colors Satan has painted the character of God, can we wonder that our merciful creator is feared, dreaded, and even hated? The appalling views of God, which have been spread over the world from the teachings of the pulpit, have made thousands, yes, millions, of skeptics and infidels. The theory of eternal torment is one of the false doctrines. And so on and I I think there have been a number of atheists who have just said boy if God is going to torture people for an eternity For eating fruit in the tree that they shouldn't have eaten that I just reject it all and uh, You know become atheists so often atheists just need to be enlightened about the reality of uh, the good news They're rejecting something that actually is quite uh, um, Deplorable to believe that God would do that. Well, anyway, those are some issues about the immortality of the soul Now, what about us and the second coming? Will we know when it will happen? Well, Paul would say later in Thessalonians, there's no need to write to you, brothers and sisters, about the times and occasions when these things will happen, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come as a thief, comes at night. When people say everything is quiet and safe, then suddenly destruction will hit them. It will come as suddenly as the pains that come upon a woman in labor, and people will not escape. So we won't have a clue. It'll be like a thief in the night. Well, don't stop reading. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the darkness and the day should not take you by surprise like a thief. Should not. All of you are people who belong to the light, who belong to the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then we should not be sleeping like the others. We should be awake and sober. So it will come like a thief in the night to some. Uh, but to others it won't. And that doesn't mean we'll know the day or the hour, but by the events and the circumstances and the things that will be happening, um, the time of the end uh, will be evident and clear to some people. And in 2 Thessalonians, do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the final rebellion takes place and the wicked one appears who is destined for hell. He will oppose every so-called God or object of worship and will put himself above them all. He will even go in and sit down in God's temple and claim to be God. We talked about this last week. Remember, we are the temple. Satan ultimately wants to be worshipped as God. And a good example of this would be the Pharisees, um, who calling God by the right name. But yet, what did Jesus say to them? You are of your father, the devil. So... In their worship of God and in their calling him by the right name, they had actually a completely satanic picture of God. And Satan is delighted with that. He goes in, sits down, claims to be God, and loves to be worshipped as a harsh, vengeful dictator. Don't you remember? I told you all this while I was with you. Yet there is something that keeps this from happening now, and you know what it is. At the proper time, then, the wicked one will appear. The mysterious wickedness is already at work. But what is going to happen will not happen until the one who holds it back is taken out of the way. And kind of reminds us of the the four winds in Revelation being taken out of the way. And he goes on. Then the wicked one will be revealed. But when the Lord Jesus comes, he will kill him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with his dazzling presence. The wicked one will come with the power of Satan and perform all kinds of false miracles and wonders and use every kind of wicked deceit On those who will perish. Now, we would want really want to know how could we avoid being tricked here? So notice, they will perish, he's going to tell us, because they did not welcome and love the truth, so as to be saved. Now, what truth would you need to welcome and understand in order to be saved? And so God sends the power of error to work in them so that they believe what is false. And how many times in the Bible is God described as doing something which he allows? Does God actually blind eyes and close ears? Uh, No, this is a description here of God allowing this to happen. Say they go into error. The result is that all who have not believed the truth, but have taken pleasure in sin, will be condemned. So again, our question is, some people will perish because they did not welcome and love the truth. They did not believe the truth. Okay, so it would seem that uh, things would settle down on the truth about something. Now, Jesus would say, "I was I was born and came into this world for this one purpose, to speak about the truth." Well, there are lots of things. I mean, um, every church has a list of doctrines and truths. So, could we be more specific? What truth would it be? Well, what was Jesus' whole mission? And eternal life means. Knowing you, the only true God. How do we know the true God? And knowing Jesus Christ whom you sent. But he would even declare this to be the truth. I have shown your glory, your character on earth. I have finished the work. Many versions have the mission you gave me to do. Hey, a singular work, mission, what was it? I have made you known, made the Father known. As I like the Message Bible, I've revealed your character to those you gave me out of the world. His mission, his work again and again, singular purpose was to reveal what God is like in character. That is ultimately the truth, the one truth that stands above all others that we have to be settled in on. And that's why I like when we go to Revelation, which describes the, the context of this battle between God and Satan, that it uses those same words. The dragon was furious with the woman, went off to fight against the rest of her descendants. Okay, what's the description of those people? All those who obey God's commandments, what is all law, points down to love for God, love for neighbor, and are faithful to the truth revealed by Jesus. And what truth did Jesus reveal? He revealed the kind of person God is. And then later, Revelation 19, I am a servant together with you and with other believers, all those who hold to the truth, that Jesus revealed. He revealed a truth. God's true friends, believers, hold to that truth. Worship God for the truth that Jesus revealed is what inspires the prophets. The good news, which is about God, has always been the source, ultimate source of inspiration for the prophets. And finally, in Revelation 20, I also saw the souls of those who had been executed because they had proclaimed the truth that Jesus revealed and the word of God. So it all does come down to that. Now, a couple things from uh, Timothy. This is kind of an interesting book. And he starts out, Paul does, by describing the purpose of this order. What would you say is the purpose of Christianity? The purpose of this order is to arouse the love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Okay, what is it that stimulates love? Well, it is love, ultimately. And God is love personified. And so love can only be stimulated when we come face to face with the reality of who God is. So the purpose is that we respond to that and it stimulates love. Now, I'll read this in the net uh, Bible and include this the next verse there. And it's described this way, but the aim of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have strayed from these and have turned away to empty discussion. Okay, what would we classify as empty discussion? In Timothy, Paul describes empty discussion as making lists of ancestors, getting, you know, quabbling about uh, the law and specific details. And in Titus, he would say, but avoid stupid arguments, long list of ancestors, quarrels, and fights about the law. Now, I think we can go a little further Perhaps Now, not to call it empty discussion, but I would say any um, religious meetings or organizations where as a, as a pattern, week after week after week, the discussion centers on just about anything other than a discussion about God, what God is like, well, I mean, that has to, it has to be the core of what we talk about and what we think about. Um, there are some, some groups I know that uh, always spend a lot of time about the age of the earth, or the creation account. Was it real, literal, or not Uh, vegetarianism? Uh, I mean, I know some people that think about that, talk about that much, much more than anything else. It's not empty discussion, but let's put everything in the right uh, context here. We should be spending and thinking and wanting to talk more than anything about God, what kind of a person is God, all the way revealed through the Bible, everything else then kind of falls under that um, umbrella. Now, I, I don't know if I should tell this story, but I guess I will. That uh, Last summer, um, I was asked to give a, a series of talks um, at a meeting. This particular evening, the subject was, why did Jesus have to die? And so, you know, I was really getting into it and went about an hour and it was a lot of fun. And afterwards, I saw a couple coming down toward me And the man was very emotional and described um, how they almost didn't make it to the meeting. And it was miraculous that they made it to the meeting. And he described all the circumstances of how they made it to the meeting. And you know, I'm assuming, but they were really moved by what what I had to say. And so I'm waiting for, you know, whatever to open up here. And um, the explanation he gave is that another woman had seen the length of his wife's dress and had commented that it was just at the perfect length for modesty, and that uh, he was so pleased, they were both so pleased, that they had been able to witness to this other woman who had come to the meeting, and then she came down, and for about 10 minutes, um, I listened to a discussion about the proper length of a woman's dress. And um, now, this maybe sounds uh, critical here, but I'm just saying, we had just talked for an hour about why Jesus had to die, and then the uh, the great thing was, I, there are lots of details, by the way, that you can make about a length of a woman's dress that, that they got into it that I found rather interesting. But um, anyway, I'm, I'm just saying there are lots of things that we can get off into as a side issue. And I should say that people like this are really trying to do what is right. It comes from a sincere motive, I think. It is trying to be good. It is trying to do what they think is proper and that would please God. And so I think it does come from a good motive. I'm not not putting all that down. But what often happens is if our focus changes from God to trying to do what God has asked us to do or perceive what God has asked us to do, uh, then something interesting happens. Uh, We see that ultimately in the Pharisees, but... If our picture becomes mainly the blueprint and we try to expand that blueprint to help us obey, and uh, what happens is, is we're looking at the rules and we expand our list of rules to help us obey, obey, there is a natural thing, is that we become much more aware of other people not living up to what we consider to be the blueprint. And uh, just like the Pharisees, it's a natural thing. We become very judgmental and critical of others because we look at other people and we say, now I have the blueprint, and I don't see you holding up to what I consider to be the blueprint. And I have to say, as a little thing with this, you know, my daughter who went to that uh, meeting uh, the whole week, sat there, listened, um, you know, which a uh, 14-year-old girl listening to a whole week of talks like that, I was very happy that she came. But she was not dressed, I think, quite as they thought that uh, someone should dress. I mean, it was 100 degrees. It was hot, you know. It's okay to wear a short sleeve shirt, I think, for a meeting like that. But... Um, anyway so that kind of thing can really turn us into judgmental people if we're not careful reading on in Timothy that we may live a quiet and peaceful life with all reverence towards God and with proper conduct this is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved I like that God wants everyone to be saved and to come to know the truth okay how do we how are we saved? well we first we know the truth about God, do we respond to that? For there is one God and there is one who brings God and human beings together, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself to redeem everyone. And I love this translation here because uh, many of yours, if you look here in 1 Timothy 2, it is there's one God and there is one intercessor, mediator, but this is really the description of an intercessor. Um, An intercessor is one who brings the two together. That is the biblical definition of an intercessor. It's not one who shields us from someone's wrath. It is one who brings us and God together. Okay, God God so loved the world that he sent his son. It wasn't uh, as an appeasement kind of thing. So the intercessor function is to bring us to God. God never had to be reconciled to us. We had to be reconciled to God. And uh, bringing us together is the role of the intercessor. That was the proof at the right time that God wants everyone to be saved. And that is why I was sent in as an apostle and teacher of the Gentiles to proclaim the message of faith and truth. I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. Now, in Timothy, Paul goes on to describe church leaders, who should be an elder, and so on. And uh, there are a couple interesting little tidbits here. Um... In 1 Timothy 5, do not drink water only, but take a little wine to help your digestion, since you are ill so often. I'm referring to Timothy. Well, would you mind if that helped his digestion just a little bit? And then in the description of a church leader, he says, this is a true saying. If a man is eager to be a church leader, he desires an excellent work. A ch- church leader must be, and he goes through a long list of things. And then he says here, church helpers must also have a good character and be sincere. And they must not drink too much wine or be greedy for money. Now, would Paul say he must not drink too much grape juice? Or, well, he must not drink too much wine or be greedy for money. And I don't know why I pick out some of these kinds of things here. I'm certainly not advocating alcohol, all right? But, uh, I mean, I see a patient every month who has damaged their cerebellum or their peripheral nerves from alcohol abuse. It's a very, very, very sad thing. And I guess uh, the reason this just struck a chord with me is last week I was reading a Bible story with, uh, with my boys and uh, there's a description of Jesus coming back in the clouds, you know, the typical clouds and trumpets and everything. And there below is a picture of those people who will not uh, go up uh, to heaven with Jesus. And all the women have necklaces and earrings because and, uh, of course they're not going to heaven. And uh, and there's a man there who is uh, smoking a pipe, and in amazement, his mouth opens up and the pipe is falling out, you know, because, of course, anyone who's smoked, well, they're out. And and I'm just saying that we often tend to have a fairly uh, uh, rigid understanding of external things, and if anyone doesn't match what we consider to be our blueprint, then uh, we, we really put the label on those people. Now, let's just say here, okay, so Paul is talking about in Timothy, who can be a church leader? Let's just say you're on a committee, in your church, and a group of you, 10 or 15 or whatever, are trying to decide, okay, we're going to nominate someone to be a church leader. Now, let's go through the Bible, and let's see who you would nominate here. Let's start with Noah, uh, the only righteous man of his time, according to God, the only righteous man. He said several times, the last good man. God plucked the last good man out of his time. Okay, we would be delighted. I mean, to have Noah as a church leader, that'd be great, right? Well, maybe a hand goes up in the back of the room. Now, just one minute. Now, you remember the story about Noah, how he got drunk and Ham walked in on him. You know, I think just to be clear, let's not have someone who may have those kinds of issues as a church leader. All right, well, let's move on here. Abraham, I mean, the example of faith, Right? Anyone object to Abraham being a church leader? Well, maybe a hand goes up. Are we going to allow a polygamist to be a church leader uh, in our church? Well, that is a good point. Um, And we think about how patient God has been in dealing with people who have um, very patient. I mean, is God for polygamy? No, but he chose not to abolish these kinds of things at that time. So maybe there are concerns about Abraham. Well, Okay, let's move on. David, a man after God's own heart. Um, King David, wouldn't you want him to be head elder? Well, I think maybe a number of hands would go up and say, um, you know, okay, we need to even bring up Bathsheba, but then he had to murder her husband. And uh, we could list 15 other things about David uh, that would maybe be a concern. Okay, how about the, the wisest man that ever lived? Solomon. Uh, Wouldn't you want him to be head elder? And look at the wonderful book of Proverbs, Song of Songs, and uh, I think a hand might go up. Um, You know, he did go after other gods that were involved in child sacrifice. And um, do we want our elder who has been involved in that at one point in his life? Um, Hmm. Okay, Hosea? And someone said, you know, he married a prostitute. But then maybe an argument breaks out. But God told him to marry a prostitute. So, um, okay, let's get out of the Old Testament, perhaps. And let's go to Peter. And, um, you know, the foundation, the rock of the church on this truth. I will build my church. And maybe someone would say, boy, a guy with a temper maybe a little unstable to be a head elder. And uh, you remember how he denied Jesus and how, uh, you know, he whacked off the ear of Malchus, and... Um, Even after the resurrection, remember, Paul had to confront him to his face and in public for his hypocrisy we read about in Galatians. Okay, let's skip way, way ahead to Martin Luther. Boy, now here's a great hero of faith, right? Okay, anyone have a problem with Martin Luther? And then maybe someone would say, well, did you know that there was a phrase used for Martin Luther, king of hops, which was, he was quite fond of beer, apparently, (laughs) Um, are we gonna count Martin Luther out okay let's get way forward C.S. Lewis and someone maybe even brings in some evidence about C.S. Lewis look I want to read some quotes to show you this man would be a great head elder look what he said God will look to every soul like its first love because he is its first love Boy, that would be a good head elder from the moment a creature becomes aware of God as God and of itself as self The terrible alternative of choosing God or self. This sounds like a man who had some good things to say. And then prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the self-righteous are in that danger. Okay, maybe we found someone. Okay, but then again, another hand goes up in the back of the room. Uh, I have discovered a picture that I think we should all look at before we decide about C.S. Lewis. And apparently he did like to smoke. And someone might say, I don't want to serve on any kind of church board with someone who smokes. Okay, there's a point coming clear that there have been sinful humanity all the way through. God has worked and inspired people who have had lots and lots of flaws. We should be very generous. And maybe this person who keeps raising their hand would say, Actually, I do know of some people, and uh, boy, they've, you know, health reform. Remember how the Jews, they washed their hands in a peculiar way. They were very, very careful. Church attendance, always. Sabbath observance, always. Bible reading, inside and out. Mission and outreach, absolutely. And tithe paying. And of course, these people who were so externally keeping so many things right, uh, hated God when he showed up and crucified him. So remember, it is all about the internals. Now the internals work out to the externals as well, but it has to start with the internals. Now, go to Hebrews 11. This is known as the faith chapter, right? And God goes through and talks about men and women of great faith. Who does God nominate for this? Okay, well, lots of the people we just talked about. But notice as Paul is uh, inspired here to finish up his argument. He said, it was faith that kept the prostitute Rahab from being killed for those who disobeyed God now just to avoid confusion wouldn't we want to leave a prostitute out of the faith chapter but no she's in there and that's good news she's in there for she gave the Israelite spies a friendly welcome should I go on and I'm glad he does because he says there isn't enough time for me to speak of Gideon an example of faith remember we talked about Gideon how God himself came and he wanted a miracle so he went and cooked a goat and we imagine God waiting how long did it take to cook a goat and finally Gideon brought it back and God burned up the goat there's some evidence but then remember he wasn't sure so he said uh, give me a wet fleece and a dry ground okay so God gave him a wet fleece and a dry ground and I'm just sure that Gideon thought ah oh, that was really dumb Because what does dew do? It's gonna get sucked up into fleece and the ground is gonna be dry. And so he probably thought, you know, that could have just happened naturally. And so then he asked, give it the other way around, a dry fleece and a wet ground. And of course, God did it both ways. Here's an, an example of great faith, Gideon who needed many, many miracles to convince him. And you read through Barak, Samson, what were Samson's dying words? Uh, Please help me destroy this temple so I can get even with the Philistines for putting out my eyes. But he's in the faith chapter. Jephthah, remember who made the foolish vow. And he ended up carrying through to kill his daughter over this foolish vow that he made. And then there's David and Samuel and the prophets. So the point is God here would nominate, so to speak, many people that we might have problems with. And yet, uh, I think, aren't we glad that God is in charge of the judgment and not a committee of some of us trying to decide these things? How does God judge? I do not judge as people judge. They look at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. That's in 1 Samuel. And in Galatians, God does not judge by outward appearances. And I like this one in Colossians. If, along with the Messiah, you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Then why, as if you still belong to the world, are you letting yourselves be bothered by its rules? Don't touch this, don't eat that, don't handle the other. Such prohibitions are concerned with things meant to perish by being used, not by being avoided, and they are based on man-made rules and teachings. They do indeed have the outward appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed religious observances, false humility, and asceticism, but they have no value at all in restraining people from indulging their old nature. It all has to start inside, not working on the externals. Oh, and I thought of this one other illustration here. I mean, just imagine you're in heaven and maybe you're walking with your wife on the beach or something or wherever and you find a whole bunch of diamonds. And um, boy, you're just amazed how beautiful these are. Maybe you string them all together. Maybe you make a, a necklace out of the diamonds. They're so incredible. Uh, what do you think God would say if you walked by and saw your wife uh, with these wonderful diamonds around on a necklace? Um, you know, what do you say? Boy, that's not allowed up here. And I didn't mean to leave these diamonds lying around anyway. Um, don't you think God would say, boy, those are pretty. And um, now, there are, there are issues with jewelry. I'm not even getting into the jewelry issue. That's not what this is about, okay? <laughs> But what I'm saying is here, let's read about Lucifer before the fall. You were once an example of perfection, how wise and handsome you were. You lived in Eden, the garden of God and wore gems of every kind, rubies and diamonds, topaz, beryl, I don't even have to pronounce all these different ones here, emeralds and garnets. You had ornaments of gold. They were made for you on the day you were created. So the point is God is, uh, loves beautiful things and, uh, and this really uh, should not be an issue. Okay, and a last point on this in 2 Timothy. Remember that there will be difficult times in the last days. People will be selfish, greedy, boastful, and conceited. They will be insulting, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and irreligious. This is a bad list here. They will be unkind, merciless, slanders, violent, and fierce. They will hate the good. They will be treacherous, reckless, and swollen with pride. They will love pleasure rather than God. They will hold to the outward form of our religion but reject its real power. What is the real power of our religion? Romans, it is the gospel. That is the power of our religion. But do you see here how God has such a difficult thing on his hands? This describes a group of rebels, very, very rebellious people. So God is trying to reach the rebels, but at the same time, he's trying to reach the people who do not have the true power of religion but are trying desperately to obey. And in trying to obey without knowing God, become hardened people. God is trying to reach both spectrums. What God wants is this. Rather, the real Jew, the real Christian, is the person who's a Jew on the inside. That is, whose heart has been circumcised. Well, just to conclude here, we have to put just a couple verses here from Titus. Uh, to finish off this book. And there are a couple of real uh, good points here in Titus. So we'll just bring up two passages. In Titus 2, For God has revealed his grace for the salvation of all people. Now, how would you interpret that verse? God has revealed his grace for the salvation of all people. That grace instructs us to give up ungodly living and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this world as we wait for the blessed day we hope for when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will appear. He gave himself for us to rescue us from all wickedness and to make us a pure people who belong to him alone and are eager to do good. Okay, but again, God revealed his grace for the salvation of all people. What does that mean? Well, let's go on here to Titus 3. And he clarifies, but when the kindness, grace, and love of our God and Savior was revealed... He saved us. That's kind of the same point, isn't it? Grace was revealed for salvation. Kindness and love was revealed. He saved us. Okay, how are we saved? We are saved by trust, right? We trust God. What brings us to trust God? It is when we see what he's really like. He's loving. He's trustworthy. We put our trust in God. When did we put our trust in God? It was when we saw what he's really like. So when Jesus comes as God in human form and reveals God's grace, his kindness, his love. He restored us to trust, and we're saved. It was not because of any good deeds that we ourselves had done, but because of his own mercy that he saved us through the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? Again and again, he brings us the truth about God, who gives us new birth and new life by washing us. God poured out the Holy Spirit abundantly on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that by his grace, we might be put right with God. Again, in using these words, put right, trust. Abraham was put right with God by his trust and come into possession of the eternal life we hope for. Now, this is so similar to Romans 2, 4 here. Surely you know that God is kind because he's trying to lead you to repent. The revealed love and kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. And I like here Luther's, Description, what does it mean to repent? And this is what Luther said. In our Latin Bible, repent has come to mean to do penance. But in the original Greek, it means to change one's mind. And that's exactly what it is, to repent. It's to change direction, to change our mind. And that is what Jesus meant. Jesus didn't ask for penance, works, deeds, or rituals. He asks for a simple change of heart. And so again, the revealed love, kindness, goodness, graciousness of God leads us to change the way we think and act. We put our trust in God, we repent, we turn around, we go a different direction. And all who receive God's abundant grace and are freely put right with him will rule in life through Christ. Okay, these, these all need to be thought through, but we receive God's abundant grace. We receive his great love. We receive a true picture of God. And then we're freely put right with him How are we put right with him? The trust connection has been restored. And then we will rule in life through Christ. And I like Paul's concluding words here in 2 Thessalonians, because I think this should be our hope as well. Pray for us that the Lord's message may continue to spread rapidly and be received with honor. And um, how discouraging, I think, had Paul known, there would be such a long, dark, Period of time where the truth was literally extinguished. But may the Lord lead you into a greater understanding of God's love. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we pray that we will come into a much clearer understanding, reality of who you are, and that you, the source of all wisdom, may come into us, that we may reflect your glory, your character and that many others will hear about who you are. Amen.